Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Coulson. In this episode, we discuss India's drug trafficking challenge and its impact on South Asia and the United States. The war on drugs has gone on for many years and received coverage in pop culture, from clear and present danger, to traffic, to Sicario, with a heavy focus on Central and South America. Television has covered the U.S. drug scene with fictional stories like The Wire and Breaking Bad. The international drug trade, meanwhile, remains all too real, and now includes both classic and emerging forms of narcotics smuggled in from India. Listeners may be more familiar with traditional South Asian opium and heroin trafficking through India. A resurgence of this trade in recent times has created problems for the government in New Delhi and for the people of India. In addition, as the third largest producer of legitimate pharmaceuticals in the world, India now experiences significant problems with smuggling and the diversion of precursor chemicals for illicit narcotics. We asked CSIS's Natalie Tessimer of the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies to run down the basics. India's narcotics issue is really a two-pronged issue. The first prong is precursor chemicals and pharmaceutical drugs. Those are being produced in India from wholesale pharmaceutical companies um, and from other Indian pharma companies. Some of that is not always produced for explicitly illicit measures. A lot of that is diversion of illicit drugs. The other side of that is the opium and the heroin. Some of that is being produced in India, either illicitly or illicitly. India does have a large problem of illicit opium production once again being diverted for illicit measures. But a lot of that opium and heroin is being trafficked from Afghanistan. And Afghanistan has Taliban-grown opium, these very old opium and heroin networks that have existed for centuries, and India is a transit country for that opium and heroin. So from India, these drugs are going to the rest of Southeast Asia and East Africa. We've traced them even into Europe as well. What is a precursor chemical? Natalie explains. A precursor chemical is a chemical that can be used to make other drugs. It can be used to make legitimate pharmaceutical drugs, such as cough syrup, or it can be used to make methamphetamine. One of the biggest examples of this is ephedrine. Um, ephedrine is produced in India in large quantities, and that is used for things like cough syrup, which is, goes to the licit market, and that also gets shipped to Mexico, where it is used for methamphetamine production. Um, and we've seen very clear ties from ephedrine and pseudoephedrine going from India into South America and then directly into the United States. To get a better handle on how the United States is affected by drug trafficking from India, we spoke to a U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA, officer based in Delhi, India. My name is Derek Adney. I'm the country attaché for the Drug Enforcement Administration. I'm based at the U.S. Embassy in Delhi, India. Derek Adney breaks down the DEA's role in India. Ultimately, our office, the DEA office here in Delhi, is in place to support uh, narcotics investigations that link between the two countries. Um, investigators in the, in the United States, say in Los Angeles or New York, may have drug investigations that link back here to India, and uh, or vice versa. The Indian investigation uh, investigators here in India might have investigations that have links back to the United States, and our role is to liaison between the two investigations and make sure there's a smooth transition or a smooth passing of information and um, an understanding of the, the expectations of the, the laws between the two countries. Most of the calls that we get regarding um, uh, support for investigations in the United States and in India re- 
regard the, the illicit distribution of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. or the diversion of precursor uh, or drug chemicals used to chemicals used to make manufactured drugs, um, diversion from the legal manufacturing of that here in India into the illicit market. Um, we also support money laundering investigations. There's multiple money laundering investigations, both by authorities here in India and in the U.S., that uh, connect between the two countries um, in, involving narcotics and, and illicit funds here in India. And also we have um, partners, um, multiple offices for the DEA around the world, and sometimes we'll get requests from countries that might not have a direct relationship with uh, investigators here in India, and they'll look to DEA to liaison or pass information or make the connection between the various countries, uh, narcotics investigators around the world and, and then here in India, um, mostly outside the region here. To gain a deeper understanding of this transnational challenge, we also sought out an expert on illicit drug production and trafficking. I'm David Murray. I was a... Uh member of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy for about 13 years, left a couple of years ago, and I'm now serving over at Hudson Institute as a senior fellow. And our areas of concern were all across the horizon of drug policy. David Murray points out that India's situation shares some similarities with other challenging regions for narco-trafficking. India came up uh, as an area, South Asia generally, for obvious reasons and for some non-obvious reasons in terms of global partnerships for drug supply and the same challenges and threats that narco-trafficking and issues of terrorism and funding, issues of public health difficulties for uh, domestic governments, all those came together. The dual challenge of synthetic precursor diversion and heroin production comes against the backdrop of India's history in the area, its geography and agriculturally focused economy, and its role as a center for legitimate medicine production. David Murray explains. Well, the wider context in which they are situated, both historically and geographically, puts them at great risk uh, as, a, as a nation that historically, at least early 20th century and even a little earlier, was part of a global opium trafficking problem under the British Empire in terms of the history of India as a opium-growing region that was part of a huge multiple metric tons of storage and production and part of the opium production problem at the turn of the 20th century that gives them a context of having been involved in this. Uh, geographically, they're obviously adjacent to uh, Afghanistan, which is the global production center for illicit narcotics, though India has a illicit business of producing opium supplies for the global uh, medicine market. Nonetheless, in their context, there's an enormous amount of trafficking implicating uh, both Afghanistan, Pakistan, the Makran coast, uh, certain areas that move adjacent to India or into India, and the funding from narcotics activities clearly plays a role in conflict circumstances, uh, Punjab, Kashmir, uh, and so forth, where you have uh, terrorist groups that are taking advantage of both striking at India and at neighbors and f further sort of providing global uh, supplies of heroin that lead to all kinds of insurgencies and criminal uh, cartels that are based on those activities. And then finally, India has a very well-developed and extensive uh, chemical industry, and the manufacturing of chemicals and of uh, medicines has been centered there for a very long time, and a great deal of modern narcotics production 
is to take a plant cultigen, such as opium poppy, or even uh, coca crops, and then apply them with a chemical processing that involves a large amount of sometimes controlled chemicals, sometimes uncontrolled industrial chemicals that are critical in the production. That's the traditional narcotics profile of these cultigens coming out of uh, agricultural activity. But increasingly, the world is seeing the rise of synthetic uh, narcotics and other forms of drugs, synthetic stimulants. And these are sometimes produced entirely within industrial processes and do not depend upon uh, the uh, agricultural activity whatsoever, but are concentrated on chemical production and chemical movement and the generation of these uh, chemical uh, uh, illicit substances that obviously uh, integrate with and overlap with the production of illicit uh, medicines that are also chemical and oftentimes synthetic. So India is caught up in all three of those historically, geographically, and in terms of their own positioning as a large chemical supplier and uh, producer. Murray highlights that Afghanistan's opium production is the elephant in the room in India's traditional narco-trafficking problem. It's hard to ignore the impact of Afghan opium production on the whole region, indeed the globe, the hundreds of metric tons of opium production that are coming out of ungoverned spaces in Afghanistan and have been for since 2001. It's been a huge rise most recently as the U.S. presence has been, so we say, destabilized. And since opium production and storage is a huge gross domestic product concern for Afghanistan, that the uh, value of this crop has had considerable impact, uh, and the illicit market is a huge contributor to the flow of, of funding in and out of Afghanistan. The sheer volume for the global supply that comes out of Afghanistan and the fact that opium and heroin produced therefrom are both commodities, uh, obviously, but they're also media of exchange, that they are used in traditional activities, in taxation, in marriage activities, in uh, inter-clan, inter-lineage relationships, that the opium becomes a long-stored medium that is valuable in and of itself, as well as entering the global uh, market trade. So that is the first and continuing problem that has historical depth. The rising demand for synthetic drugs has created new problems for Indian law enforcement. The more recent, however, and probably in the future uh, equally troubling, if not more so, is the rise of this synthetic trade. The new types of drugs, synthetic cannabinoids, synthetic opioids, synthetic uh, amphetamine-type stimulants, these have risen dramatically. They're much more difficult to control. They're much more difficult to segregate off the illicit versus illicit activities that support them from industrial production of chemicals. And actually, they're much more difficult to evaluate in terms of how much is out there. When you have a traditional crop in the ground, it is susceptible to overhead analysis. We can do imagery. We can make crop estimates. Traditional agricultural activities can be seen. We can make judgments of the amount of hectareage devoted to the production and so forth and the amount of labor force that would be involved. Well, all of that disappears. And what is already 
in uh, a hidden activity, uh, uh, the, the production of illicit drugs and the movement of funding that's occult, as it were, and not visible to banking or to international commerce, becomes even more hidden when it is these uh, diverted chemicals or synthetic production that can take place in industrial centers without leaving a visible signature. Very difficult for us to have a sense of how much is moving, how much funding is it generating, uh, and who's involved in it becomes far more problematic when you have these synthetics. Meanwhile, the rise of synthetic drug trafficking creates complications for other countries, including the United States. Natalie Tessimer gives a rundown on why it's becoming a health problem for the U.S. The United States has a growing prescription drug and opioid problem. Um, whether these are people who have started taking drugs for a very normal reason and get addicted, or people trying to use pharmaceutical drugs because they're cheaper, the death rates of people dying from overdose of prescription drugs have skyrocketed. Those are even more than both heroin and cocaine combined. For the United States, this is a scary problem because it's harder to regulate. It's harder to regulate these licit medications that are now being used for abuse. And so for the United States, that there's a country that is producing so much of these pharmaceuticals that are either you know counterfeit or produced illicitly but diverted, that's scary for the United States because here is the supply to meet the demand that is growing. The volume of illicit drugs flowing through or coming from India has added to the complications for India, the United States, and the globe. The DEA's Derek Odney explains. Um, heroin comes into India. Um, it's sourced primarily from Afghanistan, and it comes into India via Pakistan. Um, lesser quantities come into the country from Burma, and lesser quantities even still um, are diverted from the uh, legal opium fields or the opium fields in place to support the pharmaceutical industry here in India and around the world. There is some um, illegal or non-government uh, sanctioned growing of poppies in India, but the bulk of the, the heroin that enters the country does come from Afghanistan through uh, or via Pakistan. Um, much of the heroin abuse in India is in the form of brown sugar heroin, um, which is a lower quality heroin. And we received multiple streams of information of large or multi-hundred quantity kilograms of heroin that enter the country. Um, on the reverse of that, we, we received very little reporting of large seizures of heroin in other countries um, that have been traced or sourced back to India. So that would indicate that perhaps that India is not a primary transit zone for heroin, but more of a destination for the consumer market here in India. David Murray has a similar outlook. Well, the degree to which trafficking transits India for opium and heroin activity is enormous, and they are either somewhat uh, victims of that activity, and certainly victims of the funding that comes therefrom that fuels subversive groups that make strikes at India. They are also to some degree complicit in this. There is a modicum of opium production still associated illicitly with Indian activity in the relatively ungoverned spaces up along the northwest frontier and tribal areas and so forth associated with Pakistan-Afghan border that has implications for India as well. But I would say it is the industrial chemical processing, the control of manufactured chemicals and somewhat industrial activities there as well, and the rise of a bewildering variety of novel synthetic chemicals, some of which are not yet identified 
as, uh, as scheduled or controlled drugs. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime has difficulty even identifying how to segregate off or identify as threatening the sets of narcotics and or chemicals that go into their processing, much less the products themselves that come out and are intermingled with the very large medicinal manufacturer that comes out, legitimate medicines that are part of traditional Indian manufacturing activities that go globally. The, these things get mixed together and diversion from that industry and the masking of these illicit activities under the guise of this industry I think are very serious threats to the Indian government and to the uh, integrity of their drug production. There are also the questions of the counterfeit manufacturer uh, that goes towards uh, medicines are produced without necessarily having the standards and or the components or the regulatory oversight that go into the global market for medicines and India is uh, considered a center of this kind of activity. Uh, a particular example would certainly be what we saw with regard to the methamphetamine trade. Uh, back in the early 2000s, we were deeply concerned about the rise of methamphetamine as a synthetic amphetamine type stimulant and the uh, process chemically at that point involved uh, pseudoephedrine as one of the major contributing chemicals for the makeup of methamphetamine. And India was known to be a global source for ephedra and pseudoephedrine, part of their own uh, medicinal activities and industries. Uh, but also as the production of methamphetamine shifted on reliance on yet other chemicals as precursors that were more difficult to control, we engaged with India several times, we meaning the United States and the United Nations bodies, about trying to get a better handle on these underlying chemical precursors that were critical, not just to uh, uh, chemicals like acetic anhydride that's used to process opium into heroin, but chemicals like the ephedra and pseudoephedrine that were the critical building blocks of amphetamine-type stimulants and uh, and methamphetamine in particular. So we would have regular engagements on the international stage with the Indian government uh, and representing, the, they were representing their own chemical industry and their own law enforcement and regulatory and public health officials trying to get a handle on the scope of India's role in contributing to the global supply of these precursor chemicals that were commonly moved illicitly but oftentimes moved in conjunction with traditional and licit medicines and uh, therapeutic uh, activities that went out globally as well. And disentangling those was a real problem that we engaged with, particularly at what's called the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, the CND. It's held annually in Vienna under the auspices of the United Nations and the International Narcotics Control Board. We would meet regularly there with representatives of the Indian government trying to get a better sense as to the scope of this problem and how it could be more carefully controlled, regulated, and reported on so that we could formulate our strategic understanding of how this business operated. It's critical to bear in mind that the vast majority of India's precursor chemical production is legitimate and contributes to a lower cost medications in the United States and around the world. Derek Odney tells us more. I, I wouldn't characterize the, the large pharmaceutical industry or the, the chemical industry here in India as a threat to the world. Um, but just given the sheer size of the industry here, um, and it, and we've got to remember that the that the pharmaceutical industry and the chemical industry is a 
is a legitimate um, uh, business and and it supplies and benefits much of the world's economy and and supplies healthcare and medicine to, to much of the world. Um, India is the, the number two international supplier of pharmaceuticals to the United States, um, and it supplies much of the world with many generic drugs that that benefit the the, the rest of the world. The challenge that the industry faces is the diversion of those chemicals and the diversion of those pharmaceuticals to the illicit market. And who are the people behind the illegal activity? What networks drive the supply? Is there overlap between opiate trafficking and the illicit synthetic trade? David Murray points out that the picture is fuzzy and following the money is not easy. Well, that's very difficult to answer with any, any uh, definitive clarity. There clearly is overlap. I mean, uh, there are transnational organized criminal entities. They strike where they may. They can be involved in polydrug trafficking. People can be moving cannabis. They can be moving captagon, the synthetic stimulant. They can be moving opium if the chance becomes available. Uh, and it might be the same organizations with different arms. They do specialize, as we find in Mexico. You get certain of the transnational cartels who focus on the areas of drug control in their particular region of the country so that they will specialize in cocaine movement out of Colombia, but that they control that trade in the plazas across the U.S. border. Or they may focus on methamphetamine, yet other groups that are sometimes at war with each other and so forth, and, then or, and or control of opium. Uh, in, in India, I think what you have is a, uh, a mixture of opportunistic transnational criminal organizations that will satisfy demand once you have the capabilities set up of a network of distribution, and crucially, if you have the capabilities set up for the return and movement of funding. The dollars that are realized in this trade are a burden to a criminal industry. They need to find a way to launder this money, to move it across international borders, and to evade detection. So sometimes the same organizations are not necessarily the ones providing the production of narcotics or of illicit uh, chemicals, but they may very well be involved in the uh, finessing of the movement of funding. Uh, Hawala networks, for instance, in the banking systems that try to evade international regulation and you don't necessarily get the, uh, the clear recognition of the amount of value that's moved or who moved them by what mechanism. The multiple money laundering activities involving uh, what we see in Colombia with the black market peso exchange, what we see in the Mideast with uh, kinship networks moving value, uh, the means by which uh, international monetary centers like Dubai become sources of both uh, investment into these activities as well as reaping the profits therefrom, and they get hidden from view in the financial regulatory arena. Just like every other industry, the internet has changed business practices, and transnational criminal groups are no exception. Derek Odney describes how the dark web has shaped criminal practice in India and enhanced criminal networks' ability to deal with smugglers and distribution networks around the world, including in the United States. The, the, the networks and systems that are involved in the drug trafficking um, through India here and internationally mostly revolve um, for us um, currently is, is the pharmaceutical investigations that we're seeing. And most of the buyers and sellers are connecting through the Internet or the dark web. Um, there, there's an increase in the number of drug deals that are culminated over the Internet and through the dark web, and the payments are made and received over the Internet. And 
the buyers and the sellers uh, rarely come together personally. Um, and this has just been a, a I think a, a, a boon for the suppliers here in India and the and the drug the the illegal drug dealers in the U.S. Um, they've connected um, over the internet and they uh, have a payment system either with bitcoins or other um, internet-based um, payment systems um, that remain anonymous and they can and they can culminate their deals um, anonymously even to each other. And also on that. On that front, there's, there also is a lot of movement of the of money and illicit funds through the informal networks, um, or the Hawala system, or the uh, the the, uh, the systems of the transfer of funds informally between various countries. And we see some of the drug transactions um, uh, funded and and paid for through the the, the traditional or Hawala system. With so much money to be made, there is no shortage of entrepreneurs. Derek Odney walks us through a recent investigation in the Indian illicit synthetic drug market. Well, it, just like any other um, industry, um, it, 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 India is connected to the it, 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 to the world in a, in, in a large fashion uh, with um, various different countries um, uh, through through multiple different industries. In other words, there's there's uh, there's folks from countries, all the countries around the world that, that operate their, in their businesses here, and on the on the illegal side of the transnational crime side, we also see that operating, and we'll, we'll see various different groups from South America to Central America to, to manufacturers, the illicit manufacturers of narcotics that reach out to the um, chemical industry here for their supply of illicit chemicals to the um, illicit manufacturer of chemicals in Central and South America. We've seen young Indian op- entrepreneurs that uh, that look to get a foothold in the pharmaceutical industry, and that they'll start off their their businesses in an attempt to, to supply uh, Indian sourced pharmaceuticals to the rest of the world. And they'll get sidetracked, or or they will get uh, diverted into the illicit market because of the money that's involved and the and the high income that can be made. Um, a recent investigation that the Indian authorities did down in Ahmedabad last year um, was kind of indicative of this. There was some young Indian op- entrepreneurs that graduated with uh, degrees in pharmaceutical and chemical um, uh, industry and received licensing, and they set up uh, their Internet website and, their, and they set up their business to be legitimate suppliers um, to the international market for Indian-sourced pharmaceuticals. However, they were inundated with requests for illicit um, uh, illicit requests for supply of pharmaceuticals, and they soon learned that they could generate a lot of money and make a lot of money if they would simply sidetrack some of the regulations um, and and supply the the requests that they received from uh, from uh, people uh, internationally. Also, we we also have obviously a large, given the size of India, there's a large India, India diaspora around the world, um, and there's so there's connections to multiple countries, and sometimes. Particularly, we've seen that in the money laundering investigations, where the diaspora will connect with each other, and they will connect with the, 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 the criminal underworld to move illicit funds through some of the networks and some of the businesses. Um, the illicit funds from drug trafficking in North America, and, and some of the, the, the black money, as they call it here in India, um, through various businesses around the world. To learn more about the challenge India faces from narcotics trafficking and how it affects the populace, we spoke with a colleague who has experience analyzing India's security environment. I'm Brigadier Gurmeet Kamal. I'm affiliated with the IDSA, that's the Institute for Defense Studies and Analysis in New Delhi, and an adjunct fellow with the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies. 
in Washington with CSIS. We asked Brigadier Gurmeet Kanwal why narco-trafficking represents a serious problem for India, especially for the state of Punjab. It is because it's mixed up with security in the sense that uh, the funds from narcotics trafficking are used for the purchase of small arms and to send terrorists into India. So from both the sides, that is the western border with Pakistan, as well as the northeastern states, narcotics trafficking is mixed up with internal security challenges that India faces. Kanwal feels that the reality of confronting the problem in Punjab has affected the locals in several ways. It's been a major challenge that the state of Punjab has faced, primarily due to smuggling from across the border with Pakistan, that is, East India's Punjab is Eastern Punjab and Pakistan's Punjab is Western Punjab. So the border is fenced, but smugglers find a way to get through it. Some of, some of it happens in the riverine terrain. There you cannot really fence the border. The water will wash away the fence, or the streams are fast. So mostly it happens through riverine terrain. Some of it, some of the smuggling happens with the connivance of the rangers on the Pakistani side and some security personnel on the Indian side, some border security force personnel have been arrested for connivance in drug smuggling. And the result has been that the three border districts bordering Pakistan, Punjab districts of Gurdaspur, Amritsar and Firozpur have become uh, heavily drug, uh, the number of drug abusers has gone up considerably, maybe something like 20 to 25% among the youth, which is a huge chunk of the population. And it's a very serious challenge that the government of Punjab faces on the Indian side. The Indian central government has limited capacity to address the issue in places like Punjab. Aggravating the situation is the fact that the relationship between narcotics traffickers and terrorist groups in and around India is expanding. David Murray provides insight into the challenges this creates in countering these activities for India, the United States, and regional partners based on his time in government during the 2000s. The way the United States legal authorities are set up, you usually have a, an arm of concern that is counter-terror, and that's seen as national security activities, as uh, uh, intelligence-driven, as involving uh, military structures, and uh, official authorities that come from certain aspects of the law to drive those engagements. Counter-narcotics activities and counter-transnational criminal activities, however, are not as well-defined and sometimes fall outside the scope of traditional counter-terror networks and analyses and counter-strikes on our part. Unfortunately, they do uh, bleed into each other and they are contributing and intermingling far more than we would like. But just as an example, we had a great difficulty coordinating the right sets of authorities for dealing with an entity like Colombia, which is a very deep and partner with the United States and has been for years as we've run international programs there. The programs would have a counter-narcotics focus because of the cocaine and heroin coming out of Colombia, but we also had subversive groups like the FARC and others, including the, uh, the right-wing paramilitaries, who were engaged in narco-terrorist activities against the Colombian government and others. So finding the right set of authorities to provide funding for counter-narcotics and counter-terror wasn't always a clear line. Who had the agency responsibility? Department of State, Department of Justice, Department of Defense. Who deployed at what points with what uh, legal authorities to go after these groups? Uh, the similar kinds of uh, challenges present themselves 
not just in, in uh, this hemisphere, but likewise in Afghanistan, where you had U.S. presence there with a huge military footprint, and yet enormous concern about counter-narcotics. Was that a DOD mission? Was the Department of Defense going to be the frontline response to illicit opium production in Helmand province? That was never clear, and when you got the priority orders out of the DOD for how we were arraying our forces and our activities, how were they to integrate with the capabilities of, for instance, the Drug Enforcement Administration, also pursuing some of those same people, seeking criminal takedowns, seeking extradition, and sometimes those activities were at cross-purposes with each other strategically. That is, the United States found itself a bit entangled in its own uh, dual uh, strategic objectives, going after either counter-narcotics or counter-terror. Yes, but what if they're, what if they're the same groups or in, in cahoots with each other? How do we handle that and who is the lead agency? That has never been clear. And I suspect that similar difficulties are presented uh, in countries like India. They certainly are found as similar difficulties in Europe as to who has lead and uh, criminal justice activities and military activities do not effectively uh, integrate unless there is specific legislation and a specific imperative from the White House to direct them so. In the absence of an office like mine, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, these uh, two entities, the two agencies, would probably not coordinate well at all unless the president, as it were, sort of requires them to do so by establishing a national strategy that then coordinates the act activities of counterterror and counter-narcotics along with the public health component. In the absence of offices such as that, and we do not find them in many parts of the world, this is a huge gap and we do not have effective responses. And yet increasingly we see that counter-terror funding uh, is traceable into the realm of the narcotics activities. So if we do not address the basis of the narcotics trade as a generator of funding, it's very difficult to pursue the, the groups who are deeply involved in terror and subversive activities since many of them are dependent upon just this nexus. Uh, and we are not well organized to respond to that where we find them in conjunction. Gurmeet Kanwal explains how a portion of funds generated from narco-trafficking are used to finance terrorist and separatist groups in India and South Asia. Like I said, the funding for terrorism comes partly from narcotics trafficking. We have the Golden Crescent on the western side, that is Iran, Afghanistan and Pakistan, and the Golden Triangle on the eastern side, that is the, border, the borders of Thailand, Laos and Myanmar. Out of this, the Production in Myanmar is about 90 to 95 percent. The remaining 5 to 10 percent comes from Laos and Thailand. So India is not really a destination for drugs in the sense that the drugs are moving towards a market in India. India is a transit destination. The drugs pass through India. But some of the money is that the profits, the drugs generate, some of the profits are used for financing terrorism. Pakistan has been fighting a proxy war with India since 1989-1990. That's now over a quarter century old. And some of the money for that proxy war comes out of drugs trafficking. Similarly, in the East, the insurgent groups that are inimical to Indian security, some of them even seeking independence, they make their money from drugs tra trafficking, purchase of small arms, 
even recruitment of personnel comes from money financed by drugs. There is a lot of fake Indian currency notes that are circulated. The acronym used is FICN, fake Indian currency notes. And these fake notes are used to purchase drugs and then introduce them into the Indian market, both for consumption as well as uh, transit to international destinations. And that is another method of uh, indulging in drugs, drugs trafficking or in, in profiting from narcotics trafficking for sponsoring terrorism. Uh, there is uh, somebody known as D Company. It's a Hawala company. Hawala really means money laundering, international money laundering. It's headed by Dawood Ibrahim, who's an Indian citizen, a fugitive from justice in India, who's been given shelter in Karachi in Pakistan. Everybody knows where he is, but the Pakistanis won't turn him in. So that is something that is a point of discussion between Pakistan and India in the composite dialogue process, that Pakistan should hand over Dawood Ibrahim and curb his activities, curb the activities of D Company. And lastly, the Nigerian, Kenyan, Afghan syndicates are deeply enmeshed in uh, drugs trafficking. And they, we need international cooperation to get rid of these syndicates and eliminate the menace that they pose to society. The expanding links between narco-trafficking, terrorism, and broader transnational organized crime is a problem for South Asia and the United States, says Natalie Tessimer. The opium and uh, heroin trade is a security concern for the United States because of its links to terrorism. Um, opium in Afghanistan is generally Taliban trafficked, which means that there are very clear links between the networks being used to traffic opium and heroin from Afghanistan through Pakistan, which also has terrorism and security links with India and Afghanistan, um, into India and to the rest of the South Asia community. The problem is, is that this is a trade that has not been able to be reduced. So whether this is increased maritime usage or aviation um, or just people on the ground, there are instances in Pakistan where people are throwing the opium over the fence into India and somehow they get away with it. And these are networks that can be used for other dangerous issues such as terrorism or such as smuggling of persons. Logging, illegal logging has become an increasing trade. The, the illicit trafficking of cigarettes has become a trade, all using these centuries-old networks that are traveling from Afghanistan into the rest of the world. With the terrorism connection to the opium and heroin trade, the United States should be placing so much more of a concern on supply reduction. But right now, the only capability is really demand reduction. And so that hits more India's domestic interest, not the international security issue. So the domestic interest of India is more the addiction problem. India has skyrocketing rates of child addiction because these opium producers are using opium in children as young as two, four. They're seeing eight-year-olds with very high levels of opium and heroin addiction. Um, Narendra Modi actually has put on several podcasts about why this drug addiction problem is so large. And that's just from, coming from this national scale. So in India, the United States works with all different South Asia countries to on-demand reduction. But that doesn't actually target the networks. That doesn't actually target the trade of the Afghanistan-grown opium and heroin into India. And that, why, that is why we should be focusing more on the supply reduction element as well. So what can the Indian government and the United States government do? 
Brigadier Kanwal says India has work to do. Well, the border management needs to improve considerably. We have open borders with Nepal, for example. We have an open border with Bhutan. While there are border, border management forces, but they are few and the posts are few and far between. And it is like a porous border. Anybody can walk in from Nepal. Similarly, of, uh, in recent times, drug trafficking has increased from the route from the sea as well. Karachi to the Ran of Kutch, Karachi to the western seaboard of Maharashtra and Gujarat. So the ingress points are far too many. Border management needs to improve considerably. The measures that the government of India has taken include strengthening of the enforcement agencies and to some extent better management of the borders, prevention and interdiction efforts along known routes, control measures at export points, improved interdepartmental coordination, identification and eradication of cultivation. That's extremely difficult to do. But to some extent, the government has succeeded in doing that. The strengthening of intelligence apparatus dealing with drugs. And finally, international cooperation is, has been increasing considerably in the last few years. So the government of India is extremely conscious of the menace of drugs trafficking and has been taking positive measures to prevent and reduce the threat. But there's a long way to go. Natalie Tessimer argues that, going forward, the United States and India must continue to expand their levels of cooperation and intelligence sharing to make a bigger dent in narcotics trafficking through India and across the Asia-Pacific. Both the Indian government and the United States government have really increased their efforts to stop drug trafficking, whether that be the pharmaceutical side or the opium and heroin side. Both countries are very aware of the issue. Um, And I think that right now, for the current capacity, they're trying very hard. However, that's clearly not good enough because the problem is growing. And so from the Indian government standpoint, it really is an issue of cooperation. In the Indian government, they're really doing what they can for the current levels of cooperation. But that cooperation needs to increase in order for this drug issue to actually see some relief. What's most important is that our DEA on the ground is able to cooperate with the Narcotics Control Bureau in India. For them to be able to do conjoined operations and to share intelligence would give so much more potency to the operations they're conducting. The seizures would be so much more relevant and so much more clearly tied to the United States. They would have so many more resources if they only did that intelligence sharing. Looking ahead, there are a few things that both the United States and India could be doing to really alleviate the drug problem. The first of these would be intelligence sharing between the DEA and the Narcotics Control Bureau in India. That intelligence sharing would lead to much greater capacity and more resources for operational um, elements. The second would be the United States having a shift from demand reduction to supply reduction. Supply reduction requires many more resources, and it requires utilizing money laundering tools. It requires utilizing counterterrorism and counterorganized crime and looking at some of those elements as crucial to the drug trafficking control issue as opposed to just demand reduction, which is more looking at the drugs themselves. Um, and the other important recommendation I would have for both governments and for an international stability would be more regional cooperation. 
Um, there was a sub-regional drug focal point meeting held by the Colombo Drug Advisory Plan um, earlier this year, and that was helpful. It was a combination of different South Asian, Southeast Asian, and even Afghanistan, Iran, and Pakistan all had delegates at this meeting. The United States went as an observer country. And this was rather rare to see all of these countries in one room together talking on the same issue and agreeing about demand reduction. But that's the issue. It was about demand reduction. It was not about supply reduction because these countries would have very different approaches to supply reduction. So if we can kind of facilitate a regional dialogue, and that might even include China as well. China is also a transit country for opium and heroin coming from Afghanistan and a producer country as well. So it faces many of the same challenges. We could have sharing of best practices and sharing of intelligence across borders because drug trafficking is really a transnational issue. It does not just get limited to India. As trafficking in illicit drugs throughout India continues to diversify, the tools for understanding and combating transnational activities like these will need to expand to dampen their impact in India, in the United States, and around the world. Here at CSIS, we'll be watching. That's our show. Thanks to Brigadier Gurmeet Kanwal and Research Associate Natalie Tessimer of CSIS for their insights. Special thanks to Dr. David Murray of the Hudson Institute for his insight into the global illicit narcotics market and for sharing his experiences working for the United States government on those issues. And a very special thanks to Derek Odney of the DEA office in Delhi for taking the time to talk about his work and the DEA's experience on the ground in India countering illicit drug production and transnational crime. The audio for this podcast was edited by Lauren Abu Ali. The podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our revamped CSIS.org or Kajadasia.com. I'm Will Colson. Thanks for listening.